Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5 featuring three friends stumbling through the wilderness of season 5. I'm your host Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how you doing? I am well. I am mostly well. God. I am caffeinated. Uh, I, I don't hate my job as much as normal today. I feel that's like good. that's about as as much as I can ask for on any on any given Tuesday. I said fuck it and ordered pizza for dinner, so nice. I've got that going for me. All right. So I have a question. Hit me. Uh, what did your space sandwich have today? Mm. Centauri blue jello cubes. <laughs> Gross. It would soak into the bread. That's disgusting. <laughs> well, I mean... So Justin didn't specify that it had to be a sandwich with bread on the ends. It could be a sandwich with like graham crackers. Okay, I'm not getting. We're, we are not turning this into a a sandwich epistemology or not epistemology. There goes my f- philosophy degree. A sandwich metaphysics podcast where we discuss what exactly qualifies as a sandwich. I think that mine would be an entire head of animal. A la Jakar, <laughs> in between uh, two tiny pieces of bread. Excellent. What about you, Justin? Um, I, I actually I got a sandwich today. Um, I had a nice uh, roast beef, turkey, and provolone sandwich from the West Coast god of sandwiches, Togo's. Mmm. Yeah, Togo's fucks. Tonight we are covering two episodes: episodes three and four of season five, "The Paragon of Animals," and "A View from the Gallery." Somebody who is not me has the paragon of animals, so they can take it away. Whichever one of you would That be. would be me. Excellent. Quick, quick sidebar. I always feel like the paragon of animals is like a brand of animal cracker. <laughs> what the? It's just... It's just... <laughs> okay. I, I, don't know, I don't know how to respond to that. Um, okay. It should be a brand Maybe you should, should, work, maybe you should talk to the Shakespeare estate. And see what you can do about that merchandising. Um, on, on, well, what you should do is you should. Um, I don't, what's, that's a reference to Shakespeare, right? Or Hamlet. Yeah. Okay, so obviously you need to find a similar quote in something, and you need to have the renegade of animals. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Paragon of Animals, written shockingly by JMS, directed by our old buddy Mike Vehar. Uh, boy, do I love an episode that begins with the subtitle, Indistinct Clamoring. That bodes well. The Drazi are demanding their tech advances in a meeting of the former League of Non-Aligned Worlds, now the Interstellar Alliance. Uh, but Delenn is holding out for their agreement to the Declaration of Principles. As any American in the 21st century will tell you, just getting humans to agree on anything, much less on something as lofty as principles, is a tall-the-fuck order. Getting a bunch of aliens to agree on it seems even harder. Londo, legitimately helpfully, if you can believe it, points out that the Centauri have signed it already. 
Jakar, uh, equally helpfully, but perhaps not quite as nobly, says that if the Centauri can sign it, then literally anyone can. The Drazi insist that they've never enslaved their neighbor, so therefore they don't need to sign, which is totally a thing that someone who is planning to behave ethically does. After the meeting, an inexplicably smug Garibaldi, who perhaps just enjoys seeing other people descend to his level of moral morass, chats with Sheridan about the problem. He says that they should drop the principles and smarmily suggests that if they if that makes him slightly to the right of Attila the Hun, that's fine. He wants to see more of the iron fist inside the velvet glove. Uh, in a weird way, making him the covert intelligence head makes Garibaldi more likable. Not a lot. Like we're talking. It means he fits his he fit the job fits his personality better. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna say. He's no longer pretending to be the good guy. Like he has dropped all pretense of being a protagonist, and now he's just the necessary evil. And. Uh, I find that without the stain of hypocrisy, he is mildly less offensive. Uh, and I appreciate that. Elsewhere, uh, a planet's being bombed. Bummer. The people are sheltering underground, and one of them enters, followed by a ranger. He says that B5, uh, the ranger will tell B5 about their plight. Cue the god-awful intro I still hate. Back on the station, the usual suspects, shared into land Londo and Jakar, are trying to hammer out some solutions. One world needs food. They, they're trying to figure out how to get another world to help. Meanwhile, Jakar is not paying attention and is instead rewriting the principles for the nth time, trying to make them more linguistically appealing to the Drazi. Into this morass comes Mr. Helpful Sunshine, Garibaldi. He's got a super great idea. They've got a vulnerable population of telepaths that can't really afford to say no, and he's got a morally dubious scheme in mind. He wants to recruit them to be intelligence gathering agents. Surprisingly, well, the Centauri have been doing it for 300 years isn't the compelling argument he thinks it is. <laughs> he extracts an agreement to just talk to the telepaths about it from Sheridan. Can't wait to see how this goes. Uh, it turns out Byron is having absolutely none of his shit. Garibaldi goes down to their lair in Brown Sector and the first thing he does is bully the first kid he sees reading a book, uh, literally slapping the book out of his hands like a fucking schoolyard jerk ass. Uh, when Byron saunters out of the, his the back room of their 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 telepath den and says that Garibaldi has been broadcasting all down the hall, and since they have stopped blocking out the mundanes, he. He didn't even have to read him. He didn't have to scan them. He just announced his intentions as he as he approached. When Garibaldi starts to get offended about not being allowed to shout at them first, Byron lectures him on how easy it is for him to, to be read and how any moral ground he might have had vanishes and how he doesn't have any moral ground in this situation. Garibaldi is there to recruit them to be spies and now he's acting offended that he has been spied upon. Byron makes it clear that they are happy to work for their keep, but they will not go from the Psycor slaves to Garibaldi's. Outside the station, our ranger arrives in a super trashed White Star, tumbling out of the gate and is rushed to MedLab. He's in super bad shape, babbling somewhat incoherently about how they're all going to die, and we have to help them. Franklin tells Delenn, who is watching over him as he is descended into a coma, that he's got a few hours to live. She brings in Lita to read the man's mind and find out where he was and who he was afraid for. 
As she scans him, she sees the ranger's memories of meeting with the people on the planet, who tell him that they are being raided twice a year for their resources, which they had previously been hiding to prevent such a situation. Now they are fighting back and they are being bombed to shit as a consequence. They want to join the Alliance, freely offering their resources in return for help. As the memory ends, she sees the ranger who asks her if he's dying. He tells her the name of the people, the Enfili, and says that they're a good people and begs her to help him. Then he turns and with Lita's encouragement, walks into a tunnel of light and gets vacuumed up into the afterlife. The world, Delenn tells Sheridan over dinner, is on the edge of drowsy space, but has never been one they claimed. They're truly unprotected and unclaimed. The only way to help will be to get into a fight. Delenn and Sheridan talk through it, and thanks to some not-at-all-menacing advice from Dukat, Sheridan decides to make a point and send literally every White Star that they can afford to send, which will be fine, I'm sure, and not at all have a consequence that's unforeseen in a future episode. <laughs> As they depart, Sheridan meets with the Drazi ambassador to give him a heads up that they're sending a fuckwagon of White Stars through their territory. After he leaves... The Drazi ambassador hustles off, looking deeply suspicious, and as he goes by, Byron steps into frame, looking equally suspicious. On the Zocalo, Garibaldi then shows up to try and leverage whatever minuscule personal relationship he has with Lita. I don't even know if they've ever shared a scene together. I don't know where he's going with this. I, I think the last time we had a scene with the two of them was when um, she was asking him for a job. And he had to. F- wow, is that ironic? And had, yeah. And uh, and he said, and he had to fire yeah. her because Edgar's didn't want uh, telepaths working with That's them. That's right. And now he's coming to her asking for favors. That's fucking dark. Yep. Well, anyway, he comes to her and literally plies guilt and the whole nine yards to get her to agree to talk to them. Uh, Lita, however, has had a day. And tells him so. She tells him a story about how there's a theory that Bester saw too many people die and that it turns him cold because when you watch someone die telepathically, it takes a piece of you with them. Garibaldi's like, cool, great, that's tight. Uh, how about it? You're going to do this thing for me? He could not give a shit. He could not give less fucks about the fact that she has just experienced this serious trauma. He just wants to know, what are you going to do for me? He sucks. She very reluctantly agrees to be his messenger. That night, Sheridan cannot sleep and gets out of bed just in time for the door to chime. He finds a scroll there, which is the opening of the Declaration of Principles. Delenn awakes, and she asks it to read it to, read it to her. Over Sheridan and then Jakar's readings, we see Franklin writing to the ranger's family to notify them of his death, and then Lita going to see the telepaths. She approaches their den, but finds only Byron, who tells her he knows why she's there and then gives her a weirdly charismatic kind of lecture slash like demonstration of how she's been conditioned to serve other people. It's an interesting scene. We'll talk about it more in the discussion section. I have a lot to say about this scene. Um, But the gist of it is he says, you've been ill-treated and ill-used and he's extremely right. Nonetheless, he says that if it matters to you, And this is a thing you want to pay attention to because he'll say this again. He says, does it matter to you? And she says, yes. And then he says, okay, then we'll do it. Uh, He says he will provide two telepaths to Garibaldi that are 
trained beyond reproach that will be his intelligence gathering agents. And as a down payment on that agreement, he tells Lida about uh, having overheard the Drazi ambassador's thoughts about having about betraying the White Stars that are headed to Enfili. She goes to Sheridan with Byron's info. The Drazi apparently have been hiring raiders to terrorize all the worlds on their border so that they can keep their hands clean and reap a hefty benefit without getting into trouble. Sheridan decides to turn the situation to their advantage. The White Stars jump ahead to the Enfili world and set a trap for the Drazi who have been attempting to set a trap for the White Stars. While Sheridan calls for a late night council meeting. In the meeting, the Drazi ambassador watches in fear as the White Stars park in orbit around the world waiting for his fleet to come out of hyperspace. Finally, he breaks, begging to be allowed to call them off, admitting to everything. Sheridan then demands everyone sign the principles, and they all do. As they sign, Lita looks on from the hall. Later, Sheridan tries to enjoy the moment and talks with Delenn about how it seemingly confirms his need to use telepaths. In Brown Sector, Lita goes to visit Byron to hear more about his theories and beliefs on telepath rights. Bomp bomp. That's the end. Yeah. I have to say, I feel I feel like it, it always is wild to me that Byron does not like come forward with that information sooner. Because it seems like if you want to like I get that he doesn't want to serve the you know, station, mm -hmm. but like, this seems like useful information, you know? I mean, yeah. I think it's about leverage. Yeah. Like, it, it's yeah. like, he's like, I'm going to hold on to this card until playing it is the most valuable. Yeah. Byron obviously knows what he's doing here. That's the thing that most shocked me about this episode is that I like Byron. Yeah. Yeah. My number one recollection from season five. N numbers one and two recollections from season five are I don't like Byron and I don't like Lockley. <laughs> and so far, I I really like Byron. Yeah, I think the I think part of the problem with him is the styling and the way that they've got the like other telepaths who are always like silently hanging on. Right. Yeah. yeah the scene the scene where he's confronting Garibaldi and as he leaves. The, the female telepath comes up to him and like like slithers up around him definitely has a sex cult vibe yeah and and especially for sure. like that's coming precisely when Garibald or when when Byron says like that others can rent their services and it's like mm, could ooh, ooh that's mm, yeah don't like that but like, yeah if you just go by what he's saying and mm -hmm. how well he acts and not the styling or the syncophants like yeah he's fairly what solid. he's saying specifically what he's saying about the way telepaths have been treated and the what he's saying about the way lita has been conditioned mm -hmm. to respond to orders is spot on we've talked about in the past the way that lita is an outsider and is gravely misused by the Babylon 5 command staff. By everyone. And by everyone, but in particular, these people who are supposed to be her friends. These are the people that she has sacrificed an enormous amount for and who are supposedly on the side of the light and who treat her like a disposable tool most of the time. 
They can't even fucking comp her rent. This episode goes to show for that because Sheridan says thank you for her help with everything. And she's just like fucking shocked to even get the barest thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you is like, I think if he had said it with before Byron made those comments, she would have felt like the sun shone out of his ass. But because having had that conversation with Byron, she's now realizing that that is some some bare minimum shit. Yeah. It it shines a real ugly light on our our protagonists that they treat Lita this way. It's rough. I don't like it. Poor Lita, man. Uh all respect to Patricia Tallman. She really plays Lita like some of her acting as Lita is it is uneven. But she she does well with these scenes showing this like in this in the last like season and a half showing how the way that Lita has been sort of mistreated and is very uncertain of her where she stands with regards to the rest of the the command staff. And I really like these scenes with Byron. Yeah. And once once Talman gets content, that's not just sort of the like Deanna Troy in season (laughs) one, episode one, pain, pain, I feel the pain type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Like once she gets some stuff where she can actually do some actual acting, she's very solid. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I thought in general, I think Byron's doing a really, the guy playing Byron's doing great here. I really like what he's doing. Delivers some very good Hamlet lines. Also his smackdown of Garibaldi. Yeah. Yeah. His smackdown of Garibaldi's real satisfying. I think for overall, it's like the the telepath storyline. I'm like, okay, we're getting this pushed along here. We're going to see where it's going to go. I have, I have a, uh, hot take prediction that I'm going to toss in here. I feel like Lita is going for a heel turn. Like, I feel like that's being telegraphed. Define heel turn. I feel like that, that, like, by the end of, by, like, the middle of the season, she will not be working for the Alliance anymore. Um, I don't think it's surprising to say that they're leading her to Team Byron. Whether or not, whether that means she's against the Alliance, I think is, is a, a bigger question that may or may not be answered but but she may she may gain she may gain other priorities yeah yeah but i think it's fairly obvious that they're leading her into a telepath rights team byron kind of angle here Uh, i feel i also feel like byron is like byron is not log for this world (laughs) byron's got some stuff going on i'm very curious to see what happens with i I really remember very little about Byron, as evidenced by the fact that I'm enjoying his stuff right now. Yeah. And my only recollection of was hating him. But I think legitimately, I think I may have just disliked him because he wasn't Marcus. Yeah. Because he was discount Marcus. I think that may have been the only reason he was, I disliked him. He was the Maybelline telepath. Uh, yeah. And and like that's that's definitely what I remember from like last time I watched through season five. hating both byron and lockley but like not having a particularly legitimate reason to hate either of them does lockley even show up in this episode no no (laughs) because because our new co has had approximately seven minutes of screen time in the first three episodes of the season byron has gotten more screen time by a good by probably a couple factors yeah yeah other stuff i love about this episode 
the Jakar and Londo content in this episode and next episode for that matter, but in this episode specifically, the moments in this in this episode I love. It's so good when they are bantering during the the uh, IA meeting, and Jakar is like, "Yeah, if the uh, if the Centauri sign it, any of you can sign it." And Londo's like, yeah, wait. <laughs> yeah. I, I sort of kind then, of like, I wish they'd lead. Like, honestly, I'm not sure how much you can retool a show in its fifth season, but I honestly wish it was more of the West Wing. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's big West Wing vibes in the in, in parts of this episode. Like, you have to have I them sign like, it um, again. I've revised it. I've made it better. <laughs> God damn it. So, yeah. It is better. Yeah, I love that. That is a total West Wing scene. That's Sam Seaborn up and down right there. Um, I mean, honestly, Sam or Toby. Yeah, either of them. Um, I I love the the bit where Jakar says to Londo, "Oh, go away, repress someone else," and Londo (laughs) says, "As you wish." And I'm just like, that is yeah. Little did he know that every time he said "as you wish," what he was really saying was. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, Oh, hold on. Hold Are you going to make a gif of this right now? Uh, I'm just making a note for myself. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and you're bringing up a good point with the, like, Jakar and Londo stuff, which is something that I had kind of forgotten. But I think one of the reasons why so many people skipping season five does a disservice to the show is that there's so much absolutely excellent Jakar and Londo content in season five. And like both Katsulis and Jurassic bring their like a plus plus games. Yeah. They clearly have settled deeply into these characters at this point. And we haven't had this kind of like everybody's on the station and they're interacting all the time since like season two. Yeah. It's been a while since we've gotten this much of the core cast hanging out. I mean, it sucks that we don't have Ivanova, but like having particularly Londo and Jakar who have such a great dynamic and clearly the actors have built such a great rapport, Mm -hmm. chopping it up and trading barbs and it just works so well. Yeah, it's it's yeah. fantastic. There's so much good Jakar content in this episode that his quips with Londo. I loved him sitting in the dark working on the <laughs> on the the Declaration of Principles. That is that was very good. Um, and then yeah, as you mentioned, him showing up and demanding the signed principles back because he's got another version. <laughs> that was fantastic. Uh, my favorite part, though, my favorite my favorite part of this episode had to have been Sheridan doing Londo. God, yeah. I, Box Lintner's Londo was pretty good. Yeah. yeah, it was very good. It just made, it was funny because I just, as soon as he started, as soon as he like posed himself to do it, I knew what was coming. And I got to tell you, do you know what I was expecting to, to hear? I was expecting to hear Justin's Londo. <laughs> like I was legitimately surprised when it, when it wasn't Justin's Londo. Cause that's like the, that's what I expect. Of like someone imitating Londo. Yeah, because Box Lettner is the, the, the caliber. less of the accent and more of the speech pattern. Yeah. yeah. And you yeah. got and like and yeah, he does a little bit of the hands. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like yeah. that's a yeah, that's yeah, yeah. an acting thing. I will just like if we're doing that voice, you have to do the hands. Okay, one thing I wanna say is that like I don't know what it is, but the the magical aliens who have advanced technology 
with very like poor dialogue choices feels like uh i don't know it feels like that like jms reached into a planet of hats from star trek to pull out the infili <laughs> yeah <laughs> just like this they they even look like star trek they aliens do. Yeah. i mean it's like they're with, they like, hum- the weird face ridges yeah they've got they're humans with some like like they're obviously actors of like we've got this really quick prosthetic we could slap on a dozen actors yeah for like yeah. two scenes it, um and the, the the way that they've got the like brow ridges always makes me like at a distance think that they're romulans Oh, see, I always think I always get um, Bajoran off. Okay, because it yeah. it looks like if you took the nose thing and just put it on like next to their but they've eye, got, they've got the slanty, they've got over. the slanty eyebrow thing going on too. Some of them, they do have that. Yeah, I could see Romulan. Yeah. I could see the, that. It's like the ones in the background where the light is dim and yeah. you don't see the like yeah, yeah. a lot of the definition on the prosthetics, and it's like, are those Romulans? Yeah. God, I wish we had Romulans. I'm just like I'm starving for <laughs> like. I, I want I want good content of my favorite villain boys. You you just you just yeah. want who who would you want to face off against the Romulans if we had a Babylon Five Balance of Terror? Um, it would have to be Sinclair. I like Iv- I, I think Ivanova would be a fun like if we could get one episode in season five of Ivanova commanding a starship and like having to bounce her ter- bounds of terror her way against a submarine ship i would i'm like i'll write that episode <laughs> i would watch that episode yeah i was just going to say do we do we want do we want the b5 people to win cuz then it's sinclair do we want it to be an interesting episode then it would be like anyone else but I, mean, I think Sinclair. I mean, it's like I, I, Sinclair would just like rig up. So, I, I, I could do it. Like, like I think anybody would be like, it'd be an interesting episode. I think like, like Ivana would be like, okay, let's rig up these fuel canisters and we'll make our own depth charges because no boom today, boom tomorrow. There's always a boom tomorrow. I, I feel like I feel like Ivanova would bring the A game to the submarine episode. Yeah, no, Ivanova would Ivanova would just murder them. Sinclair would would have some like deep moment of connection with them and would find a way out of it. Probably still killing them, but would have like a spiritual moment while and doing Sheridan it. And Sheridan would just nuke them. Yeah, I was just gonna say Sheridan would find some way to commit a war crime while doing it. Uh, I don't know. He would like see this. Well, he would no. You know what he would do? Sheridan would find a way to. Defeat them, and then as the survivors are out in the water, he would be like blasting the survivors with a deck gun or something like that. God, um, God, dude, yeah, <laughs> it's a new one. You notice he rarely does the same war crime multiple times, he likes variety. Um, what else do we have to say about this episode? I mean, uh... Oh, um, the dinner scene, I want to talk about the wine, yes, I did too. Uh, it is. They're both drinking the wine. No, they are. I saw your note. Up. They are. No, it's water into lens glass. Is it? Yeah. Because in the JMS speaks, he says that they're both drinking uh, non-alcoholic wine. Okay, because it looks like water in that glass. It like there are two different colors of liquid going on there. It looks like. I thought I thought that it looked like they were both drinking the wine, but anyway, maybe Delenn is just into non-alcoholic white wine. I mean, well, My but it's point, red wine in the other one. My point was that it's. I am sober. 
<laughs> I don't drink alcohol anymore. I get it. I just feel like in the wide world of things to drink on this planet, there are many things I would rather drink with dinner than non-alcoholic wine. And there's a whole galaxy of planets, including an entire planet from which she comes that has no alcohol at all and has an entire culture, an entire beverage culture yeah, that must have things to drink. And there has to be one that you could drink that is better the non-alcoholic red wine. And we know that Sheridan has like a giant hard on for fruit juice. So just just have some sort of in, like exciting, interesting fruit juice. Yeah. Uh, so the only explanation for this is the fact that JMS himself. Yeah, she's drinking red wine. No, that's water. Look it's, to the look directly south of her chin, my friend. It's opaque. Yeah, no, it looks like I, I mean, it looks like chilly water to me. What do you like ice water? Are you colorblind? No, it's a different shade than the than the glass that Sheridan's yeah, they're, drinking. They're, they're lit differently, but they're both opaque. Yeah, no, that that looks like the same thing that that Sheridan. See, it looks like me. water to me. Mm. No, anyway, uh, the point I was just trying to make with all of this is that apparently the reason why they're drinking non-alcoholic wine is that JMS does. Oh, okay. <sighs> I don't know what that says about JMS, but it says something, and it's it you know. You be the judge. Speaking of things that uh, Sheridan does because JMS does, I think I've got a little bit more of like my finger on exactly what the problem with the beard is. Like not just that it's a bad beard, but it's also the the hairstyle, the like slicked back hairstyle. Oh yeah. Um, and going mm-hmm. from the uniforms, which always were like you know. Formal, but looked fair, fairly comfortable, et cetera, to much more of like the rigid suit look is like, yeah. it's such a different styling for him. And it like makes him much look much more slimier. Yeah. Like he, he looks like a slimy politician and I don't like it. Yeah. Other JMS speaks note, uh, the shot of Lita looking into the council chamber from the outside while the, while all of the representatives are signing the principles, the declaration of principles. Uh, thanks to her little shenanigan, telepathic shenanigans via Byron, was intended to emphasize her outsider status. That was an intentional thing. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, it, it, I mean, it feels obvious, but like sometimes people just shoot stuff and it just looks that way. But he said that was very intentionally done to emphasize that. So, yeah, because she's not she's not in there celebrating with them, despite having delivered the critical information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poor Lita. We good on this one? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that pretty much wraps it up. I think we hit all the, the critical points there. All right. Um, I, I got Star Trek Lower Decks. I mean, um, <laughs> a view from the gallery. Story by J. Michael Straczynski and Harlan Ellison. Teleplay what? by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Janet Creek. We we had to specifically know the differences because this is the first episode since season two we heard season five now. This is the first episode yep. since season fucking two. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, we start off with a satellite traveling through hyperspace and some alien ships blow it up. Lockley is woken up from her sleep by Zack, who tells her about what's wrong on the long range scanners, which might be an alien scout force intent on finding worlds to invade. She orders the station's 
uh, to on standby red alert and orders a life pod set aside for Sheridan Delenn for use even if she has to shove the president and the first lady in herself. Uh, we then cut to a hallway where two maintenance techs gripe about the consistent danger and the mess it makes. After the credits, Lockley tries to convince Sheridan to leave in the lifeboat, but he drags his heels. The maintenance techs, listening as they leave, say that's why they like Sheridan, that he's always down in the trenches. Um, they argue about one of their maintenance implements' functions, and then take some time for lunch, where they talk about sp Spoo and are interrupted by the red alert. When Bo, one of the technicians, goes to med lab to fix something, he asks Franklin why bother preparing to take casualties for their attackers. And Franklin relates a story of his father being taken captain and helped by an enemy doctor, which made him want to be a doctor so he could show compassion to all. In C and C, while Mac, the other tech, fixes a console, the initial scout force arrives. The station defenses and fighters engage. They're able to destroy the scout fleet with the help of Mac fixing the the secondary weapons console just in time. After the battle, he shows Zack a bug that had gotten the wiring. Uh, Lockley says that they need to prepare for the main fleet, and she'll need to talk to Garibaldi. In a hallway, Mac and Bo talk about Lockley and their impressions, with Bo mentioning rumors that she was on Clark's side during the Civil War. When they get into the lift, Lockley and Garibaldi argue about his intelligence-gathering skills, leaving <laughs> our maintenance workers in possibly the most awkward situation I could imagine. When in Brown Sector, they, uh, Mac and Bo talk about the jump gate and why they can't just shut it off. The alien fleet arrives, and the two watch the space battle from meeting room. They talk about the sanctity of life, and the station is then boarded. When trying to get to a shelter, Mac and Bo are stuck in a firefight, and in their escape, they end up at the telepath colony. Byron tells them about the passing of one of the alien invaders. Uh, one of these invaders comes through, but with the work of the telepaths, he sees nothing. After experiencing a feeling of helplessness, Byron helps Bo experience what a Star Fury pilot is going through. Bo and Mac then leave. Vondu and Jakar are in a shelter, with the former musing about how the universe is conspiring against him. When Londo muses about how calm Jakar is, Jakar says that he endured Centauri bombings as a child, and he is used to shelters. Wow, Londo, how do you feel now? <laughs> <laughs> abashed and i love that he actually looks it lando says that he really did not spend much time being a child but that he always had duties jakar replies that the difference between them is that he was able to leave his shelter when he after he grew up but lando never has Bo and mac remark on them asking how long they've been married in a like in not like a in, in a like a how cute they are way but and not like a wow gay way no it's it's very cute it's, it's definitely commenting on, like, the great dynamic that they have. Yeah. yeah. Bo and Mac get called from the shelter for a fire in Red Sector, and they pass Sheridan and Delenn arguing about getting on a life pod. Sheridan orders them to take Delenn to a life pod. They accept and escort her. Delenn asks them for their names, and Bo and Mac introduce themselves. She convinces them to let her go, and they do let her go. After that, they look out of viewport and see the White Star Fleet. They remark on how much bigger this is than them, and Bo remarks that if people can lead, he can handle it all. The vast enormity of this station. When the battle is done, they remark about how much damage was done, and then see Franklin attending the dead, and remark that maybe they don't have to deal with all the mess. As they head home after their shift, they pass Delenn and Sheridan, and she greets them, which brings a smile to the both of them. This episode is so fucking good. Yeah. It's a delightful episode. It's it's it sort of feels like it's like it's using the alien invasion to just like check in on everybody. And oh my god, even Lockley is in this episode. Yeah. 
I forgot Lockley was on this show until it panned down and it wasn't Delenn in the bed. It was Lockley. I completely Ugh. forgot she was on yeah. the show. Because she hasn't had any screen time for two episodes. No. Uh, and then it pans down and it's Lockley and her weirdly knobbly knuckles. Did you? Is it just me that noticed that when it pans <laughs> no, down? No, I don't get fox- fixated on people's hands. Like she that. has very knobbly knuckles. I guarantee she has problems I, with arthritis. Meanwhile, I I just fixated on how bad her hair is. It's bad. It's, it's mm. not a good look. It's like slicked back really, really tightly, and then like just goes down in this like thick but weirdly limp ponytail. Yeah, it's bad. I still don't like Lockley. I still hate the intro, uh, but the Star Fury X-Wings were dope. Those were cool. Um, yeah, I, I love anything that's lower decks, and this is no exception. Uh, I have some great notes from this episode. Um, my favorite one is, I heard he was dead once. Well, nobody's perfect, Bo. Max says necromancy rights. <laughs> so, so Jude, how, how mad are you about having more decent Franklin content? Uh, it's really blowing my bit here. There's nothing offensive about what Franklin says or does anywhere in this episode. Yeah, no, we get some nice backstory about, like, why he wanted to be a doctor. And he was good last episode, too. It's even good backstory. It's completely inoffensive backstory. And, like, and we get, and we get like, dad lore, which is, like, it, it's, yeah, you know, Franklin's relationship with his father is hella complicated, um, I would say, to put to it say mildly. The least. Yeah. But, like, and, like, yeah, like, the fact that, like, he became a doctor because a doctor saved his dad is, like, I think that's very cute, and I like that. It's a very good, it's a very good beat. And it, yeah. it gives extra, it, it makes the conflict between them back, you know, in Fox season two yeah. uh, so much, so much more interesting because it's, like, he's he's instead of following his dad's footsteps he's following the footsteps of the person who saved his father and then his father is mad about it and Mm -hmm. it's just really it really adds a lot to that like dynamic and lore yeah Yeah. but maybe maybe they like maybe through some sort of magic of time machine they heard us complain about franklin and you know (laughs) and they made that's our little treat for getting to season five Yeah, yeah yeah uh one of the things that really irritated me about that scene, and I think this is completely not the show's fault, I, I, I imagine, the ship's name, Bo and Franklin are both saying Eris, but the subtitles on the show have it as Ares, A-R-E-S. So either the person doing the subtitles literally doesn't know how to, doesn't know like Ares from, from, from Eris, the Greek god from the other greek god or (laughs) it's two greek gods who have names that sound very similar or it's in the script as aries and neither of the actors can pronounce that fucking word i don't know which one it is Hmm. Uh, but either way it was very irritating it's two greek gods who taste great together i don't know um i also love that bo and mac never once look unsettled like even when they're in the middle of a firefight, they are at yeah. most like, ah, fuck. Like, they're not afraid yeah, for they're... their lives. They're mostly like, well, this is fucking inconvenient. And they're in that firefight and they, they're like, they, you know, they're participating to whatever extent they can. Bo throws a punch and Mac. Mac grabs a gun. Yeah. Yeah. And then Zach is like, 
what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> yeah. And then there's Mac who's like fixing the secondary firing console, like literally in the nick of time. And he's just cool as a cucumber. Yeah. I love that they are completely, completely at ease through all this chaos. They're not panicking. Like they are un- unruffled by any of this. The, the thing that's, um, that distresses them the most in the entire episode is Delenn asking their name. Yeah. <laughs> it's very like, funny. Mac is legitimately like, like, flummoxed he's com- caught completely off guard by Delan first asking his name and then remembering it yeah i thought that was great in response to your your note about not liking the claudia christian dig yeah apparently a lot of people got on jms's case about that uh because mm. there's a jms speaks where he's like i wasn't taking a shot jesus guys I was addressing the rumors. That was fucking mean-spirited, though. Well, he's like, the whole, like, the point of the bit was to say, like, there, like there's all these rumors about why she left, and you shouldn't listen to the rumors. And But he got very defensive about it in the JMS. Yeah, piece, that's the thing that it's like, you're trying to make a joke about something, but instead you're just like, no, you're just reinforcing yeah, it. Yeah, because it's like... Yeah. The the two the two things that were presented were the in character reason and a very uncharitable take on the out of character reason why she left yeah. the show. Yeah. And it's yeah. like these were the two things presented and it's like no they're they're both sort of true. Yeah. <laughs> Except that one is extremely uncharitable. I just thought it was noteworthy that in the JMS speaks clearly you were not the only one that took took issue with that to the degree that he felt the need to like defend himself for whatever that's worth. <laughs> if that, if basically it's one of those things of like, you are a writer, your job is to convey ideas. If that many people take it badly, you've done it wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the same scene though, there, um, it's really interesting to have Bo and Mac discussing Lockley where we've got Mac who's responding in like the way that we're clearly kind of supposed to, of like, no, mm-hmm. she's, you know, she's a kick-ass person and she's got a level head on her shoulders and, you know, she's got our back in a firefight. And then there's yeah. Bo who's like, uh, wasn't she on the wrong fucking side? Yeah, yeah. Clearly, you got the the voice of the, uh, the voice of the writer coming out of one of the characters' voices, or uh, coming out of one of the characters, and he like unintentionally writes the the audience's mistrust into the other characters yeah it's it's weirdly meta that scene yeah okay so i want to talk about a quick thing mm-hmm. that um in the scene where byron and like where they where, they're, where they visit Byron, where they stumble into byron's little alcove and uh, like they they telepath the, telepathic sex den they, they telepathically like mind trick the alien invader who does they they don't get a name, love that. Um, <laughs> they they mind trick the dude into walking away. He says like, though nature has thought it cruel to take us into a world that hates us and fears us. And I was just like, you bitch, you do not get to use that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I like that. Listen, scene. listen, listen. I get it. It's 1997 or whatever onslaught has happened it doesn't mean you get to drag the x-men like this yeah (laughs) uh that scene is also really wild in the context of like last episode's piece with 
like Lita on being telepathically connected to somebody when they mm. die mm-hmm. because it's almost like two entirely different takes on it. So my interpretation of this is my read on Byron, and I don't, I, I, I haven't read deeply on telepathic stuff on how telepaths are covered in like the expanded unit the b5 eu i i think it's fair to say that like apart from random shit you remember we don't care about the expanded universe here i don't i don't care i'm just saying my my sense is that byron the fact that byron and his and his clan don't don't like lock themselves don't follow psychor's guidelines has Mm -hmm. resulted in them having a very different experience with their telepathy than other telepaths because yeah. even the even the rogues have all seemed like they're basically just psychor telepaths that don't don't obey psychor do you know what i mean yeah, yeah. like when we previously saw the uh, the telepaths in the underground railroad they all acted like psychor telepaths they just didn't wear the pin basically these telepaths don't they act very differently and i think that's given the the sort of like meta excuse uh, that I make, but it does seem to be reinforced a little bit, is that they have a very much more open experience with their telepathy that I like. I I think that's really interesting. Well, and essentially they they don't have their walls up all the yeah. time, and so yeah. you know they would be open to different experiences than somebody who is blocking themselves off at all times to try to you know yeah. avoid even surface thoughts what else there was so much good stuff in this episode yeah i i, I think it is interesting and it's like oh hey as soon as we like remove the restrictions and like let people explore oh hey we find all this weird cool stuff yeah i like like you uh love that mac clearly ships jakar and londo um, <laughs> it's delightful yeah. yeah i loved he he looks so amused when he says that too clearly this is not the first time he has noticed this you know what i mean like i just think it's great uh i think that scene is amazing um i also love god i love everything about that scene i love uh the way that jakar gently rebukes londo (laughs) it isn't like a what the fuck did you just say it's a very like he just looks up at him when londo is like what have i ever done to deserve this from the universe and jakar just kind of like looks up at him like really bitch and Londo's Lando's like, like mm, mm. All right, yeah, oh, all right. right. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a funny moment, I think, of just like, I, I think it, like, it's a, it speaks to like where they are in their relationship now. Yeah, exactly. It's a, and it's so well done. I think, again, I, we have raved so much about Katsulis's acting, even while in that prosthetic, but that is a terribly good bit of nonverbal acting that he does under a prosthetic he's wearing this latex and this makeup and he barely moves it's like if he wasn't wearing makeup that would all be in the eyes and the eyebrows but he manages to convey that same thing underneath all of that he he has found a way to do the same kind of physical face acting with his face and with his body and convey that same stuff it's just so good i fucking love jakar it's just it's such a a a a nice bit little bit of of acting there where you get exactly what he's trying to say to to londo there it's just spot on i love it 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great interaction. Yeah. Although, how dare Londo malign Jakar's singing voice? Right. <laughs> Fuck off. I would I would have loved to have gotten a uh an, especially when Londo sings like a beach dolphin and in instead uh, Jakar I would I can't even put a sentence together. I'm so offended by the suggestion. I would love to have gotten another verse out of Jakar and instead got Londo. It's horseshit, Londo. You don't know what you're saying. <laughs> so on on the line of excellent acting, I think one of the things that has made me like Byron a lot more this time around is that I'm a lot more aware of just how good his voice acting is in particular. <laughs> You know, that it's it's really understandable why he has such a intense voice acting resume. Yeah. Um, because he is stellar. Yeah, the delivery is like when he does those Hamlet lines, he really puts a lot of a lot of English on those, for, so to speak. Um yeah. he, he, he really English, you say. He he really can uh can deliver when he wants to. Um the whole scene with Lita in the previous episode when he when he does the bit with the chair uh he there's a lot of force behind his voice in those scenes it's well done yeah and and it's always interesting to see somebody who's you know maybe maybe not the best actor actor i think he does okay yeah but certainly it goes to show that voice acting and physical acting are different things and he's he's really a stellar voice actor and that does show in the show yeah. Um, so for hey, I know that face. You one hundred percent don't know the face of Kim Strauss because he's played basically every alien on the show that wears a prosthetic. He has played this is his last role on B5. He will return as the Drazi ambassador a couple times. But in the past he played the Narn Jalorn, the Minbari Lanan, the Markab ambassador. Various miscellaneous Narn, Drazi, and Markabs, and now this role. He hasn't been super busy in the last 15 years or so, but up until about 2006, he was super the fuck busy doing so much voice acting work. He was in a bunch of cartoons and anime. He was the uh, English voice of the uh, section commander in uh, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex which is a, an anime that fucking slaps and you should all watch it. Uh, he was in Tenchi Muyo, Power Rangers. Uh, he also even voiced Ultra Magnus. What up, Devin? Uh, for Transformers, Robots in Disguise. Uh, he has a very, very varied resume. So uh, hats off to him. Meanwhile, Bo and Mac are played by Lawrence Dijon and Raymond O'Connor, respectively. True to their characters, neither of them were or are big stars. Neither of them have more than a dozen or two dozen entries in their IMDb pages and have done anything particularly noteworthy. Um, but they are sort of the stars of this episode, and I thought we should say their names. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a fun episode of like it's a sort of like it's a it's a it's a it's a beat sideways. Yeah, it's like everything. And I, I'm trying to remember with their, I think this one is one of the first Lower Decks style episodes. Yeah. I think other, I mean, obviously there's Star Trek Lower Decks, the 
yeah. cartoon. The the original the original Lower Decks episode is in season four of TNG, so it came out a couple of years before. Okay, but it's it's still a genre that I really really enjoy. Yeah, yeah, getting the kind of day in the life for the people who, and you know, pointing out exactly how much work goes into repairing that damn ship or you know that damn station um every time it's damaged and you know exactly what the consequences are of a hull breach yeah etc yeah no i i think it's a really good episode for showing how connected the station is in these sorts of in these sorts of times when there's these big emergencies going on and there's all this stuff happening we always sort of just see the bridge or something like that and i think it's a good episode for showing how this affects all the people there's the people in the shelters and there's somebody trying to keep all of the systems running and Bo is thinking about the pilots and there's all these pieces uh, and it's all people. And I think this is a really good episode for that. Mm -hmm. And I just think in general, I think it's a good, it does a really great job at humanizing the, not just like the, the little people, the worker cast as Delenn refers to them. I side note, love that moment. Yeah, and she says it with such respect, too. I, you beat me to yeah. it. You and I are always on the same page when it comes to Minbari shit. She says it with such, like, respect and reverence that she's just... And I don't even think they know, what like, why she says it that way. I mean, I don't know how mm-hmm. versed in Minbari culture the two of them are. But you can tell that for her, that's, you know, it's entirely reasonable for her to ha- to show them a great deal of respect. Yeah. And they're... they're flustered and and honored by it but for her it's just they're the worker cast of course you you show them respect Mm -hmm. i like that yeah yeah um overall i think it's like this might be yeah i'll go ahead and say this is my favorite episode of season five so far yeah i think these these two episodes that we're covering tonight are the best i mean we've only seen four yeah so it's not saying much but they are significant. I don't know. Season five's been long, surprisingly long good. Lando Malari was also really solid. Yeah, yeah. season five. We're three for four for so, so far. Yeah, I got to th- I'm very curious to see where this goes south. Or maybe I just. Maybe it doesn't go south. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe I was just so like invested in the shadow storyline that once it was over, I just kind of wasn't invested in what was going on anymore. I don't know. That's why I'm actually really like enjoying being in the dark for season five i legitimately don't know what to expect going into these last this last season i i know that there's some stuff with the telepaths that we're all going to make gagging noises about good stuff excited (laughs) yeah looking forward to that Mm -hmm. yep the the last thing i want to say on this episode though is that it's fascinating because it both feels so low stakes and so high stakes right yeah. Because in the the plot that we're actually seeing, it's pretty low stakes. Like we've got Bo and Mac who are going from place to place repairing shit. They're, you know, fixing Med Bay and fixing the bridge and doing their thing. And then like this is the closest that the station has come to destruction in a since, while. Yeah. Yeah. Since yeah. the since the shadow attack um at the end of season three in Zahadoom. Yeah, because the the shadows were you know poised to annihilate the station up until the point where John jumped. Yep, and nuked them. Yep, conveniently and timed war crime. Uh, and that's the 
most recent that the station has been in that much peril. Yep. Goes to show you don't need to commit a war crime to save the station. <laughs> okay. On that note. Uh... <laughs> All right. So next time we have uh, episodes five and six of season five, Learning Curve and Strange Relations. No recollection about either one of those. Yeah. I know they were both written by JMS. That's all I know. Yeah. Until next time. Yeah, I'll be seeing you. <laughs> no, we can do that instead of that. Okay. Um, yeah, so um, let's do that again. Just because it had no energy. I'm just like, I don't need to be. We don't need to be Scott Paladin. <laughs> uh, you know what? Fuck it. Until next time. Be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share alike no derivatives license.